series of this letter that Paul wrote to his disciple Timothy. And we're going to pick it up in chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. I'd like to read it for us as we begin. 2 Timothy 1, verses 13 to 18. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would help us to put away any distractions or thoughts of other things and to listen to what you want to say today. Thank you, Father, that by your Holy Spirit you speak to each of us and our different needs or concerns or thoughts that we have. And I pray that today you would use something from the message, the scripture, the music that we've sung, or even our conversations in the hallway to just be that word of encouragement and comfort or strength that we need this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. For many of us, this has been kind of a difficult week in Minnesota. While some were celebrating the passage or the legislative decision to legalize same-sex marriage, others who believe in a traditional marriage like we were grieving. There was a sadness, and I've talked to many Christians this week who are just feeling sad for our state and our world over the decision that was made. And it would have been one thing if the uh, legislature had decided, okay, in a secular sense, we're going to affirm these relationships and just do that in a totally secular way. But when they start redefining what marriage is, they are changing something that God himself instituted. It is God who made it very clear in the book of Genesis, for example, that marriage is the union of one man and one woman. In Genesis 1, we read that at the beginning, God created man in his own image, and male and female, he created them. And he also brought Adam and Eve together, and in Genesis chapter 2, we have really the first marriage that was there that God himself officiated. And in that description of what took place when God created Eve and brought her to the man, we have this statement. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. We have this statement that would be uh, lasting and enduring, that marriage, again, is this union of one man and one woman coming together, and the two become one. Jesus himself affirmed this definition of marriage when he was asked a question about divorce. And in Matthew 19, he said to the disciples, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will be one flesh. He quoted from that passage of Scripture, affirming what was written there. And when we go through the Scripture, what we find is that the Bible tells the stories of what happens when 
people go against God's plan for marriage. I mean, throughout the scriptures, you can read stories in the Bible about polygamy or incest or adultery or homosexual relationships, and it is never good. And when the Bible talks about those things, it is describing life as it is in our world, but it is an evidence that we are a broken people. And I say that with compassion. We are all sinners, and we stand in need of God's grace and His loving transformation in our life. And the answer to the problem of our sin is not to change the standard. You know, that's a little bit like putting a Band-Aid on a wound when someone has cancer. It may temporarily make you feel a little bit better, but it's not really going to deal with the root problem. The answer isn't to change the standard. The answer is to repent of our sin, turn to Christ, and find hope and healing in Him. So what do we do? You know, that's kind of the question that believers are asking. How do we live in light of the changes that we see in our world? What should our response be? How do we deal to those situations? And I am very concerned about the other things that will follow from this. You know, the implications that come, how that will affect education in our schools, how it's going to affect Christians in business, how it will affect those who are Christian counselors. Uh, in the current law in Minnesota, there's some protection for churches in terms of what we say and do in a worship service, but there is really no protection for Christians to live out their convictions in the world. And that's what concerns me in the present legislation. And those of you who know me know that I don't normally speak like this on an issue uh, that is uh, somewhat political here, but because it is also moral and spiritual, that's where I feel the need to address it. And I think that this text is a great answer, a great response to the question of how should we live in light of the changes we see in our world. The answer is to stay faithful. Stay faithful. And we're going to look at that in two primary areas. Number one, God calls us to stay faithful to His Word. And we see that in verses 13 and 14. As Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, you remember that he was in prison when he wrote this. And he is writing to Timothy, who is a young pastor in Ephesus, leading a church that is a very significant church because from the church at Ephesus, there went out all these different kind of church plants and ministries in other parts of what was known as Asia Minor, or what would be modern-day Turkey. And he exhorted Timothy to, first of all, teach the truth. He said, what you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching." Follow my example and keep this pattern. What you heard me teach, I want you to teach. What you saw me do and emphasize is important. I want you to emphasize in your ministry. The word pattern there means an outline or template. It's kind of this is your guide. This is the way that I'd like you to approach what you are doing in your church and ministry. Now that's a great example. When we get into tough situations, we need godly leaders and members who will be an example for us. We need people that we can look to who will help us to learn how to conduct ourselves in the world or in ministry or in our business, whatever it may be. 
You know, when my older sons, Matt and Jason, were in seminary and they had the chance to take some classes from Dr. Kaiser, who was a mentor to me, you know, they responded after being in a class with him. They said, Dad, I can see some of Dr. Kaiser in you. And they saw he was an example for me. And I learned a lot that I took and applied in terms of the way that I teach, in particular in the Old Testament. And there are other men who have been that kind of role model for me in ministry as well. And what I hope is that I hope I can be an example for you also in terms of how to respond to things in our world or how we are to live. Because this isn't a time to kind of wring our hands and think, you know, all we can do is circle the wagons or, or what do we do? That's just the way the culture's going. We can't do anything. And so we just kind of throw up our hands and give up. That's not the way God wants us to respond. The darker the world gets, the greater the opportunity there is for the light of Christ to shine. And what I think we need to do more than anything else is that we need to teach what the Bible says. In our Sunday school classes, in our youth ministry, in vacation Bible school, in our adult classes, in small groups, and in the messages... On Sunday morning, we need to teach what God says in his word. Now, let me give you some encouragement on that front. On March of this year, the History Channel showed a mini-series called The Bible. Did some of you watch that? Any of you watch parts of it, you know, or at least parts? Okay. Well, what they found was that that show was very popular, They had 13.1 million viewers, which was the highest total for a non-sports event this year. Now that's interesting. A show on the Bible that is that popular that people want to see and know what it says. And then in a Barna survey, George Barna did this for the American Bible Society earlier this year. Here's what he found out. He found out that 88% of Americans own a Bible. Okay, that was down a couple points from previous surveys, but it's still very high. Almost 9 out of 10 Americans own a Bible. 80% believe that it is sacred. Now, that doesn't mean that they believe that it is the inerrant, inspired Word of God, but they do believe that this is God's Word and that it is different from other books, that there is something unique about this book. 61% said they wish that they read it more. They wish they read it more. That's a pretty high percentage of people that say, you know what, I wish I knew what this book really said. 56% believe the Bible has too little influence in American society. They think it should have a greater voice. 66% of Americans think the values taught in the Bible should be taught in public schools. That's amazing. Two-thirds. You know, you don't hear this in the media. You know, this is kind of the other side of the story of what people out there are really feeling and saying. And they think that there is something of worth in the Scripture that should even be taught in our public schools. Things like the Ten Commandments, you know, and, and basic kind of values that are there in the Scripture. Is there an opportunity here? I think there is. People want to understand the Bible. When they were asked why they don't read it more, the two most common answers were, one, they were too busy. 
That's a problem even for us, right? At times we feel like life is so busy, we struggle maybe to be as consistent as we would like in our reading of the Scripture. And the second reason was its overwhelming size. It was a question, where do I start? You know, and I understand that. If you're not familiar with the Bible and you think it's maybe like another book and I'm just going to start at the beginning and read it through and then you have all these questions and like we saw in our journey through the story, it's not laid out in a chronological order. It's more thematic. And so you have the law and you have the historical books and you have the prophets and the New Testament. You have the life of Christ and then the acts of the early church and then these epistles and you don't know how it all fits together. You need some help. But to me, that's an opportunity for the church to say, we want to help you get into the Scriptures. And they even found among the age group that are called Mosaics, that 18 to 29-year-old, that those students and young adults even more so want to understand the Bible and believe that it has something to say about life and marriage and relationships and work and all those kind of things. And so that isn't something that's just like, you know, okay, this is past and it's the older generation that wants to understand the scriptures. It was all across the board. There's an interest. So what does that mean for us in church or ministry? That means we teach the Scriptures. And it means that there's an opportunity for us to invite our friends to come to church or come to a small group or come to a study where you can get into the Word of God and begin to understand what it says. And that Word is powerful. Secondly, along with teaching the truth, we need to model the truth. Paul writes to Timothy, I want you to keep as the pattern of sound teaching what you heard from me, and I want you to do it with faith and love in Christ Jesus. With faith and love in Christ Jesus. Let them see Jesus in you. Let them see the difference that He has made in your life. Let them see the joy of the Lord bubbling over in your heart. Let them see His peace when you go through difficulties. Let let them see your patience and your forgiveness that God has worked in you. And when you talk about issues, even like same-sex marriage, speak the truth in love. It does no good to be theologically precise and yet to come across as unloving or cold or uncaring about individuals and their situation. Model what it means to be a Christian. Model what it means to have a Christian marriage and family. Be a good husband. Be a good wife. Demonstrate what God has laid out in His Word in terms of how we are to work together as couples. What does it mean to be a dad or a mom, and how does that affect our children? And we're not perfect in that. We have struggles ourselves, and we can be honest about that, but we are striving to follow Jesus. And let them see the difference that that can make in your relationships and in your family. And thirdly, guard the truth. Paul urged Timothy to guard the good deposit that had been entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Paul reminds each of us here that God's Word and the Gospel is a great treasure. We have been given this good news. We have been given this book, and this book answers the most basic questions of life. Why are we here? 
What is this all about? What is this world about? And is there a God? And does He care for me? And what is His plan for my life? What is it that He is calling us to? This book shows us how we can be right with God. This book holds the cure to the problem of man's sin. This book shows us how we can have eternal life. This book will address every major problem that you will ever face. We need to know it well. We need to understand what God has to say about all of life. And when we put His Word into practice, we see the difference in the way that life goes. Paul says, guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. You cannot do this on your own, Timothy. When you stand to defend the truth, it's not just you speaking, but it is the Holy Spirit speaking through you. And that Holy Spirit will give you power and He will give you the words to say, trust Him, trust Him. Because, Timothy, the time's going to come when people won't want to hear it. Paul would write at the end of this letter in chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. He said, The time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist and discharge all the duties of your ministry. Even then, Paul was saying to Timothy, you know, you're going to find yourself in situations where people don't want to hear the truth of what God says. And do you ever feel like that? I mean, isn't that kind of a picture of what's going on in our world? And instead, there are people who want to have teachers who will say that you're okay or this is just fine or everything goes, you know, and, and it's okay. But God's Word says that we are sinners. And it gives us a standard. And it's not just about marriage. It's about all areas of life. And it shows us how we are to live. And the answer again is not to change the standard and water things down. The answer is to turn to Christ and let Him bring the hope and healing we need. Skeptics, atheists, critics of the Bible have tried to dismiss the Word of God, but the Word of God stands because it is truth. And God's Word has power, so don't be afraid to use it. Use it in your conversations. Use it as you talk about issues in our world. Jesus said about the Scriptures that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never go away. And in the book of Hebrews, the Scripture says that the Word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You know, I read that and I think of being sharper than any double-edged sword. You know, there's a steel called Damascus steel that's used in swords or knives that it's just, it's like razor blade sharp. It's just extremely sharp. And I think of the Scripture here affirming that God's Word is sharper than the sharpest sword we could make. 
And it cuts where no sword can go, even to the division of soul and spirit. That's why it brings conviction. That's why when God's Word is spoken, I mean, people hear that and the Holy Spirit is affirming that truth. And people don't like to hear it. And some of them just frankly will want to cover their ears and they'll want to shout and they'll not want to hear what the Word has to say. And you know what? Many of us remember when we were once just like that in our life because we did not know Christ and we didn't want anything to do with God's word either and God broke through and opened our eyes to see the truth of his word and to see Jesus and see our sin and we repented of that and the word of God became for us that living book that it is in the way of life and the word of God became something that was sweet like honey to our taste that's a work of God And he uses the word to do that, to bring conviction. So don't shy away from using the scripture, but speak the truth in love. At our last congregational meeting in April, we presented a statement on marriage and sexuality that we want to affirm at our annual meeting this fall. Uh, It's just a a document that was put together that um, not only addresses issues like same-sex marriage, but also all the other kind of issues that can go around this. I mean, it it, uh, lists also things like adultery, sexual immorality, and other acts that are also out of bounds in terms of the Scripture and God's will for marriage. And uh, this is a statement that we want to put in place as a protection for our church, as an affirmation of what we believe, as a statement on the kind of weddings that we would and would not perform, and all of those kind of issues or questions that can come up. Uh, You can see this, um, it's under the resources section on our website. If you want to go to our website, you can take a look at it there. We also do have some printed copies out on a table in the foyer if you wanted to pick one up and take a look at it. And again, you can read through it, but it's really a response to what's going on in our world where we want to state what we believe from the Scripture and that that is the guide for how we will do ministry and for the weddings that we will perform as a church. All right. So stay faithful to God's Word. That was the first part of what Paul was encouraging Timothy to do and us to do. The second part that I see in this passage is that we are also to stay faithful to God's people. To God's people. Again, Paul was in prison in Rome, and he tells Timothy that everyone in the province of Asia, that is western Turkey, has deserted him except for one man, Onesiphorus. Now think about that. Paul was a lover of people. When you read his letters, you see the names of people that he knew in each of the churches, and he remembers them. He sends greetings to people. And Paul was praying for them constantly. Paul risked his life to bring them the gospel. I mean, in establishing these churches, he went through hardships and difficulties. There were times when he was arrested, beaten, thrown in prison. I mean, he suffered great peril to his own life to bring these people the gospel. And now in his time of need, Paul felt all alone. There was no one who had come to see him except Onesiphorus. Paul is in prison in what we believe was the Mamertine prison in Rome. It was an awful place. 
It was dark. It was like a dark, damp dungeon. It was a labyrinth of cells where people were condemned to die. I mean, when you went into that prison, this was like, you know, a dead end. There was no way out. You were either going to die in prison or die by execution. And I think of Paul, who had spent three years in Ephesus, this area where Timothy was. He spent more time there than in any other city. The gospel had spread from Ephesus to all of Asia, or what would be modern Turkey. The seven churches that are mentioned in Revelation are all in Asia. And now in his time of need, they had abandoned him. How would you have felt? How would you have felt if you were in that situation? You know, I think about that. If I was arrested and after 27 years of preaching here and teaching you the Scriptures, if no one came to see me, that would hurt. That would hurt. It would be devastating, and it was devastating for Paul, if not for Onesiphorus. His name means bringer of help, and that is what he was. He was one who brought help and encouragement to Paul. When you read through what he did in verses 15 to 18, you see that he was not ashamed of Paul's chains. He sought him out. It wasn't easy to find where prisoners were in that prison. He walked the halls and the narrow passageways to find where Paul was. The cell where Paul was kept is called a sane. That means it was small, almost like a doghouse, if you want to think of it in that way, with a hole in the ceiling for light and air. And Onesiphorus came came often. He risked his own life to be identified with Paul, and he refreshed him in the Lord. Paul writes, May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me. It was not ashamed of my chains. In the way that that is written, it's a little bit unusual when he said, doesn't say, may the Lord show mercy to him, but now to the household. Some wonder if Onesiphorus also was killed. If he had died and God was asking for, or Paul was asking for God's blessing on his family. We don't know. Proverbs 26 says, many a man claims to have unfailing love, but a faithful man who can find. Onesiphorus was a faithful man. And the call to us is to also be faithful. To be faithful to Christ and our relationship to Him, to be obedient to what He asks of us, to put Him first in our life, to seek His guidance in the Word. It's a call to be faithful in our marriage and in our family, to be loyal to our spouse, to be loving and kind and to help them grow in Christ, to be faithful in our relationship to the church and to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to be faithful in our attendance or faithful in our giving, faithful in our serving, faithful in our love for one another. We are to be faithful in our work, to be known as a good employee or boss who lives out the teaching of the Scripture in our work and ministry and be faithful in our friendships to those that we care about whom God has brought into our life. You know, one of the greatest examples that I know of in terms of faithfulness in a marriage is the story of Robertson McQuilkin. Robertson McQuilkin was the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary a number of years ago. 
And he showed great love for his wife, Muriel, as she developed Alzheimer's and as that disease progressed in her life. And some of you have heard this story before, but I don't apologize for sharing it again because it is a great story and an illustration of this kind of faithful love that I am talking about this morning. Robertson McQuilkin wrote a book that was called A Promise Kept, and he tells the story of what happened as his wife's um, Alzheimer's progressed. You know, it started slowly, which it does, where there would be kind of those situations where you wondered, is something happening here? Like when she told a story, and then five minutes later, she told the same story again. And she had never done that before. The times when he noticed as they had guests coming over for a dinner that she started to have some more difficulty with planning menus or making things, putting all the ingredients together in the proper order. And so they stopped having friends or guests over after a time or, who have, or would have someone else cater the meal. You know, step by step, it seemed like things were progressing, but he said Muriel never knew what was happening to her. Occasionally, when there was a reference to Alzheimer's on TV, she would muse aloud, I wonder if I'll ever have that. It did not seem painful for her, but to me, it was a slow dying to watch the vibrant, creative, articulate person I knew and loved gradually dimming out. He arranged to have care for her, someone who would come into the home that would be with her during the day, but as the disease progressed, she did not want that. It came after kind of a 10-year progression where she could no longer speak in sentences, only in phrases and words, and often words that made little sense. She would say no when she meant yes, for example, but there was one sentence she could say, and she would say it often, I love you. And she not only says it, she acts it. The board arranged for a companion to stay in our home so I could go to the office every day. But during those two years, it became increasingly difficult to keep Muriel home. As soon as I left, she would take out after me. With me, she was content. Without me, she was distressed and sometimes even terror-stricken. The walk to school is a mile round trip. She would make that trip as many as 10 times a day. Sometimes at night when I helped her undress, I found bloody feet. When I told our family doctor, he choked up and he said, such love, such love. And then after a moment, he said, I have a theory that the characteristics developed across the years come out at times like this. I wish I had that kind of love for God that desperate love to be near him at all times. And thus she teaches me day by day. He said, I listened once and to a commentary that was made about relationships where one develops Alzheimer's and the other is continuing on. And the counselor's response was really almost affirming leaving that relationship if your needs weren't being met anymore. I mean, is that wrong, you know, if you want to leave that relationship? And again, Robertson was so distraught at those kind of affirmations coming out of a counselor's mouth. Robertson Milk Wilkin made the choice to stay, and in time, he chose even to give up his job, his ministry, so that he could care for his wife in those later years. <clears throat> 
And he said this. After he had made that decision, he said, I was startled by the response to the announcement of my resignation. Husbands and wives renew marriage vows. Pastors tell the story to their congregations. And it was a mystery to me until a distinguished oncologist who lives constantly with dying people told me that almost all women stand by their men, but very few men stand by their women. But for Robertson McWilkin, it was a promise he made. A promise that was made when they stood before the Lord and their family and friends and they gave their vows in marriage. It was a promise that he would keep. That, my friends, is an illustration of unconditional love. An illustration of loyalty and faithfulness that God calls all of us to in our relationship with Christ, our relationship with our spouse if we are married, our relationship to one another in the body of Christ. The world may be changing, but God is still on His throne. And His Word is true. And he tells us that those who honor me, I will honor. If you will honor him in your life, he will honor you in the commitments that you have made. So stay faithful. Stay faithful to Jesus. Stay faithful to God's word. And stay faithful to God's people. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, it is only by your grace that we can do that. We say the words, we hear the challenge of Scripture, but Lord, we admit our own weakness. And we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to fill us, to ground in us the convictions of your Word, to be able to stand firm in a world that's changing, to hold on to the truth of what you have said, because your words are truth, and your words are life. Father, help us to live and speak that truth in love, in the conversations that we have and help us to be a church that can point people to Jesus and get people into the Word to understand the Scriptures and see how beautiful it is, the joy that it brings, and the healing and hope that you give in Christ. We ask that in your name. Amen.